Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Search for Growth. This week on the podcast, we are welcomed by Jamie Shanks, a best-selling author of multiple books, including Spear Selling and Social Selling Mastery. As well as being a best-selling author, Jamie Shanks is also the CEO of Pipeline Signals, a SaaS platform which enables sales and customer success teams to find intelligent relationship signals in their accounts, which then drives pipeline growth. Alongside this, he also runs a leading inside sales agency called Sales for Life. And as a fellow salesman myself, I'm very excited to speak with you today. Thank you for joining us. How are you doing, Jamie? Alfie and Chris, thanks for having me. Awesome. So we we connected back in November and I was really fascinated about your business, what you're doing, the value proposition. I, I'm super excited to get stuck into that. You've had a really interesting background. So before we jump into your latest endeavors, could you tell us a little bit about your origin story? How did you come to run all these businesses, the agencies, the SaaS platforms today? What's your history? Where did it all start? I was a vice president of a software company here in Toronto, Canada. Even before that, I was always in sales, always fascinated with prospecting and good at prospecting. And in 2009, I hatched an idea that I wanted to help local Toronto businesses with inside sales best practices. And don't mind if I cough or hack because I've got a bit of a cold, but <laughs> in January 2010, I spun out on my own to start an inside sales agency to serve the local Toronto market. <clears throat> and ultimately it failed for two years. It sputtered. I helped local businesses. I was a Jack of all trades expert of nothing. And I was fortunate in 2011 and 12 to see around a corner. I saw LinkedIn growing. And at that time it maybe had 50 million or hundred million users and it was being used as a resume and I saw its ability for complementing inside sales prospecting it could be used for both research. It could be used for engagement. And so I pioneered a topic called social selling. I wrote a couple books on the topic built a global curriculum and then scaled it to 600 global customers around the world. So it was the right time, the right place, I saw an opening where the world was much more interested in learning to prospect use LinkedIn, using LinkedIn than was to continue down the conversation rabbit hole of email, phone, email, phone. And that's where it all began. That's amazing. What spurred you to make that <coughs> jump into entrepreneurship? Because that in itself is quite a pivotal move in, in your life. And I'm interested to understand what, what inspired that or gave you the courage to make that move. I've always been an entrepreneur. And in fact, if you look at my history, I've actually been an employee for only I don't know, three, four years of my entire life. I've had businesses that aren't even on LinkedIn, right? Everything as you start as a kid, as a paper boy, I had a, a very successful landscaping business, both during high school and university and post-university. Um, deep in the web, you can look up Jamie Shanks and the word EcoCut. I actually invented the very first zero emissions landscaping company in Canada. So I actually was shipping batteries from China, mounting these giant batteries to lawnmowers. And it was the first 20 volt lithium ion battery power. This is long before you could go to Home <laughs> Depot and buy them. And they were being, this, these were trailers being pulled by smart cars. And so we did $300,000 in lawn cutting 
in our first year wow. as a company called EcoCut. And there's still photos on the dark web you can find of this business. And then the 2008 market crashed and nobody cared about being green anymore. So long and short, I've always been an entrepreneur. Neither of my parents are entrepreneurs, but my grandfather was. My parents' friends were entrepreneurs. So I was around entrepreneurs. I admired entrepreneurs. Like they were my heroes as a kid. So I've always wanted to be a business owner. That's incredible. So you were ahead of the trend many years before. <laughs> no. We had to cobble, like, the idea that a battery could go on a lawnmower did not exist. We had to like rip engines out and retrofit battery packs to power lawnmowers. Wow. I think I was just reading funding. There was some eco lawnmower service that raised millions of dollars in the last like month oh. or two. <laughs> and if I had been smarter, what I was trying to do was we were trying to build up the Toronto market. We had hundreds of customers in year one. And I'll tell you an entrepreneurial story. So to get this thing going, we printed 50,000 door knocker flyers. So think of the things that you hang on people's doors, right? I quit a job. I quit a job in commercial real estate that was paying me $150,000 a year to get paid zero. And I spent an entire winter from eight in the morning till five, <clears throat> walking neighborhoods, putting door knockers on people's doors, knocking on their door. Old ladies would open their door. I would sit in their living room for tea and convince them to cancel their current lawn cutting subscription. And we would do it for the same price, but they could save the environment. And I had a clipboard with a credit card like document and one by one, we'd go house to house and they would just, it was the easiest value proposition. Do you want the exact same thing, but feel good about the planet? Okay. Check. We'll see you in April. And just went, and I did this and I remember there were days like I'd be walking around downtown Toronto. It's minus 20 Celsius. I'm thinking to myself, I was wearing a suit this time last year, sitting in corporate offices, and now I am walking around in boots. What am I doing? But yeah, it's like all part of the entrepreneurial journey. You end up doing jobs that you cannot believe you're doing to get this business going. There is a high correlation with people who have had experience doing door-to-door sales. -door there is nothing more humiliating but more invigorating because you get instant feedback. You are going to either get spit on, punched in the face, have a dog bite you, or an old lady's going to invite you in and talk your ear off for an hour drinking tea in her living room. Literally. I did a job doing door to door. It was like fundraising for charity, but you were paid on like the signups. And that was like such an experience for all those reasons. You learn, okay, sales is a numbers game to a certain degree, right? You appreciate, okay, out of 100, 100 to 150 door knocks per evening, you might get a 10, 20% answer. And most of those are going to slam the door in your face and you'll convert maybe one, one to three, three on a good day and maybe one, two on, on, on average. And uh, it, it gives you the, the calluses <laughs> of rejection, which makes it so much easier to go into the world of sales. That's amazing. So you've always had this kind of entrepreneurial blood in your family and in your heart. You've great experiences building this eco-friendly lawnmower business. You've taken an experience as an employee in the sales industry and then had this idea to take your skills that you've acquired there and then go on your own. 
So in this transition from the first, the failed experience that you mentioned in those two years, and then into the one, I am assuming you're talking now about Sales for Life, where you've been for 11 years. So with this onset of LinkedIn and the social selling, in your book, you mentioned the story around, I, I can't remember the name of the company, but you got 31 sales qualified leads in 60 days. And this was the hockey stick moment. Could you talk us through that, that pivotal moment and how it led into your agency? And this is a good learning lesson for entrepreneurs who want to get going. And I used it the same sort of model when I started Pipeline Signals. So I came up with this idea, prospecting with LinkedIn. And the way that I came up with it, I was, I was my own use case. So I would sit in my corporate head office, which is the spare bedroom of our house. <laughs> and late at night, I would prospect on behalf of my own company, was then called Shanks Group. So I would prospect to try to win business. And I booked a meeting with Mark Bergen, the chief revenue officer of Vision Critical, who is now the chief revenue officer of Shopify. And so long and the short, I get a meeting with Mark and I'm in the boardroom or in the, his office or boardroom that I realize he doesn't know me from a hill of beans. There's no reason why he should hire me. <clears throat> so I have to make him an offer he can't refuse. And that offer was really simple. I'll do it for free. I'll do it for free in exchange. I'll train your team to create sales opportunities on LinkedIn. If I achieve a certain milestone in a written statement of work, he has to give references and testimonials for the next year to whoever calls, even if it's his direct competitor. And ironically, because I'm about to invent something called the sphere of influence, which eventually long 10 years later becomes pipeline signals, his competitors do end up calling. But long and the short is I create a statement of work that says, if we create X number of sales opportunities together, you will be ultimate references and testimonials. And that's what we did. So we did, this is long before virtual instructor-led training. I was live in their office in Toronto with virtual calls to their Sydney office, their London office, their Vancouver office. And I was training the team to use LinkedIn. And within 30 or 60 days, they book all these meetings. And now he becomes my first reference point. That's incredible. And you see, this was pivotal for you because you managed to get all these references, like always that you've now clearly got, this was the first time that you've tested the training, was it? In, right. in like the real world? Yeah. And there was a real method to the madness. If you remember in the movie, Back to the Future, Doc Brown hits his head on the toilet and he comes up with the flux capacitor. <laughs> this kind of happened to me. I came up with this concept called the sphere of influence. And it's really simple. Let's pretend that Yeti water bottle is your customer. I want you to take the word Yeti and put it in the center of a sheet of paper and draw a circle around it. And then draw spider webs coming from that logo. You end up looking at people that leave Yeti and go to other businesses or people that work at Yeti and are connected to other people. This concept I won Vision Critical and I went into LinkedIn and I reverse engineered all the sales and marketing executives that left Vision Critical and went somewhere else. Where did they go? Other marketing agencies. They went to a company called USAM. From USAM, I won Level 3 Communications. From Level 3, I won TANA Communications. From there, Thomson Reuters, then Oracle, then ADP. And it was just this constant human capital migration that I was able to use as a reference. Hey, I just worked with your past employer. Here's what we did. You're now the chief revenue officer over here. Do you want the same? 
And that's how we scaled Sales for Life, which eventually became a technology being pipeline signals. Yeah, I was going to say, because pipeline signals you launched, was it a couple of years ago? About a year ago now? And Sales for Life you've been doing for the last 11 years, I believe, based on LinkedIn. I was looking at this and I was thinking when you first were telling me about this process in, in, in the agency, I was like, that must take ages to do because it's, it must have been such a manual process. Like, how did you do that for these customers? And so at Sales for Life, we were a teaching agency. My customer would have been ADP. And ADP sales professionals' responsibility was to use the sphere of influence to reverse engineer their named accounts, their set of prospects. Now, the challenge with that is the kinks in the armor. So it is highly effective, as you can imagine, when you have a high enough cohort of sellers doing it. But if you have an organization that isn't accountable for doing their own homework, people don't show up and do their work, what happens is a prospect leaves one of your customers in Philadelphia. They change jobs and they go to a company in Seattle. Seller in Philadelphia goes, oh, they left my territory. Meh, I don't care. Seller in Seattle didn't show up to work that day. Didn't open up LinkedIn and check it. They totally missed the opportunity. And now that job change gets squandered because it works like milk in the sun. It decays over time, the value of that lead. So at scale, if you're the size of ADP or Oracle or Thomson Reuters, you're missing because 3% of your database is decaying every month, you're missing hundreds of these opportunities every month because you've applied humans to be your backstop to monitoring all this opportunity. That's just not very scalable. Now, as a training organization, it's still very valuable because you want those skills in your seller's hands, but it does leave cracks. And that's why we created Pipeline Signals. That's incredible. So so how you mentioned that decay of value that when a prospect leaves, do you have some heuristic or metric for how long it, how many days it is before that lead goes cold? It's not that it goes cold, but it's that first hundred days is hyper valuable. Here's why I want you to be an executive in let's play back to when you were new to an organization, you get hired first two weeks. You're wandering around the office, wondering where the washrooms are, trying to meet people. During those first couple of weeks, you're pretty, you're pretty insular in the trying to just figure out what's going on. But then you come to realize that 75 or 80 days from now will be your first end of a quarter. And at that board meeting, you're going to be expected to show up with a business plan. That plan needs to state how you're going to deploy capital, people, process, technology. <clears throat> So in the first 100 days, typically executives will start building those plans and then they'll show up to that quarterly meeting and have either mentally or physically deployed up to 70% of the remitted budget for the whole year because mm -hmm. they say, okay, you, to think about it, I'm a huge football guy. The Denver Broncos just hired Sean Payton. He's going to have to come in really quickly and have his plan. And the same thing happens with executives. And so you're trying to reach them in those first 100 days as they're most malleable to new ideas and change. Because that's when they're going to say, okay, I got it all sorted, people, process, tech, here's what I'm going to do. Now, after that point, they start working on the priorities they set 
well, priorities get pounded on top of them. Priorities get changed and reshuffled. And now they stay, now, now you're reaching out in month nine. They're like, listen, I've got three months left in this year. I've got six projects I didn't even finish. I got a whole backlog of things I need to work on. But in that first hundred days, they're still building that potential future. This is dope. We had a bunch of plays at Spendesk where, you know, new hires, I think is obviously like quite a standard one. But another one which we found quite effective was when someone was hiring like another position. So we sell to the finance team, CFOs and these sorts of things. So a CFO may be hiring for their first accounting manager or financial controller. There's a job post on LinkedIn. There's like a few things that are powerful with that. A, the job post it has a bunch of information about what they're hiring someone to do. Ooh, so it's... Exactly. So these are the gaps that they have in the business, which is like amazing pain points to reach out to and talk about. And also they talk about things like their sales stack, or not sales stack, their, their finance stack, their accounting software and stuff like that and scrape that and populate that and have that for personalization. And that was a play which was like amazing because you can either reach out to the hiring manager and basically be like, we can help with some of these problems. Or you can monitor that knowing that there's going to be someone filling that role and then following up because you've actually got the job description of what job they just got hired for. So not only can you say, oh, I know that you've just joined this new company, but I actually know the exact job description of which you were hired for. So it was so powerful. Exactly. And are you still using that play today at scale? Yeah. So we had, we would have loved to have your product years ago. We, we basically built like an internal growth team. So like a B2B growth team. So our growth managers, they were mixed between like, they had engineering, like varying levels of engineering skills, but they were really also people with marketing and kind of sales and marketing hats on. And they would, their kind of mandate was really just to put sales, customer success and marketing on steroids. And so they built all kinds of hacky stuff and we sell uh, physical and virtual corporate cards. So we had gifts that would go in emails that are personalized to people. So it's like they're making a request to buy a train ticket online or something, but they were responsible for building out. They ended up calling it a PRM, a prospect relationship management system. And it was effectively trying to scrape the internet for all of these things. And one of the really powerful ones was this like jo new job roles because we could scrape data, we could have pains and everything else, but it was really hard hard to do at scale consistently and this is we've we've spoken about offline and it's available on your website but i think one of your unique selling propositions is it's not just about the contacts that you have in your database it's also about being able to get signals on your target addressable market so do you want to just talk to us a little bit like what is what are we talking about here what does that mean and yeah, that ends up being in the, the analogy that i paint for chief revenue officers chief marketing officers Think of an iceberg, the one that hit the Titanic. So your CRM, the top of the iceberg that shows above the water is typically way smaller than the actual iceberg itself. So if you look at a typical CRM, the average seller is what we'll call single threaded. They have 2.2 contacts in the database for every account or your CSM, your customer success manager, is only talking to one or two people in the organization. But in fact, the buying committee I, I, in signals is a $2,500 a month product. Yet it seems that the buying committee is two times larger than it was at sales for life, which was a hundred thousand dollar a year product. And it just seems that buying committees are getting bigger, more cross-functional. It's incredible, right? So long and the short is what happens is 
sales organizations think that they're monitoring their accounts and their key stakeholders because they're looking at what they know. It's like as good as only what they know. They look in their database, they've got a couple contacts per account. But the reality is, what about all the other cross-functional departments? And when those people change jobs, which could be two to three times more data than you have in your CRM, do they go into accounts you know of, or do they also go into what we call the green field? <clears throat> the green field ends up making up to 50% more opportunity for a lot of our customers, meaning they go into accounts that meet your ideal customer profile, but you had no idea they even really existed. They're not in your database. So there's two parts to it. There's people you don't know, and there's accounts you don't know that end up growing your database. We had this concept in our go-to-market when we opened up like international markets, trying to prioritize and segment the market going from what's your first circle your first degree circle it's so funny because this is it is i guess this is your social proximity like framework but we we literally had exactly a, <laughs> the similar mindset which was okay instead of going to a new market where you don't know anyone and scattergun in a, across different segments and everything else like start where you know the focus is really intense and like a, the sun on magnifying glass focusing all the energy in one area and that would be for example people within our network and investors portfolio companies people that are similar to us and so on and so forth and once we really nailed that and got some user case studies and so on and so forth we would then go to like peripheral ones and in industries so i remember having fintech there were other fin or we were a fintech but there were other fintechs that naturally were a good fit for us so i just spent three months just trying to like pick off all of the different fintechs and it was so much easier because we had the sales messaging down for that segment we had the, the prospection the cold calls the objection handling the case studies it, and it really worked doing this kind of one by one and then going to it in adjacent se uh, segments There's something you mentioned about this looking at that greenfield opportunity in that time the concept of a, a look-alike audience kind of exists today in b2c like we see it on facebook we see it on instagram you can get a list of emails upload that into facebook and they'll create another audience for you which is basically this like greenfield opportunity but until i come across your company i've never heard of this in the b2b space which seems crazy to me because i would always want to try and close companies that i know are a great fit and we've got other case studies that we can prove this value to. And it does seem that the traditional way most sales companies manage their pipeline is here's a big list that we've just pulled out from LinkedIn. I'm going to split it by country or split it maybe by company size and go after them. And there's just no method to the madness. Yeah. So I'll work down from the biggest problem. The biggest problem to sales quota attainment, I've been preaching this for years. I don't think people listen to me very much about it, but I believe the number one problem for sales quota attainment overarching is time management. And when you dive into time management, it's because of poor account selection and account prioritization. And what that means is, should I call account A versus B? And should I call, if I do call B, do I call them today versus tomorrow? That decision-making process vexes and just kills the brain cells of sellers because what they do is they take a list, they call it A through Z, or they take that list and they, let's call it by revenue or employee headcount, or like none of those metrics have an asymmetric competitive advantage for you. All they are is just a list of who potentially could pay the most for your product 
all the way to the least. Instead, why not focus, focus on high probability? So that comes with, as an example, you have a much higher conversion if people who used you in the past go to another business. So to your point now on the lookalike, sometimes when we start working with customers, they get really fixated on upfront when we start with them, they'll say, here are the list of prospects we want you to go after. Upload 2,741 accounts. Okay, monitor those. We start monitoring them. And then one of the questions in our onboarding survey, are we allowed to monitor outside of this prospecting list for you on lookalikes? And they get to design the rules for the road geography, verticals, size of companies, what could potential look like? And sometimes companies will get hesitant. They'll say, we're really interested in these 2,714, but it's not like we only sell to one vertical or one buyer persona. So we're not that rigid. Okay, go ahead, maybe monitor it. We're just curious to the data. A month or two later, they start getting all this data coming in. They go, Oh, I never heard of that account. Never heard of that account. Didn't realize these people had left our customers and gone to businesses that were just an adjacency, like one side step away from who they thought were perfect for them. But when they started calling them, they had an advocate or champion in the business. That champion, when they talked to them, said, yeah, this business is just like the one I came from. I've been thinking about using your solution here. And it started opening up new verticals, new geographies, new types of accounts. Maybe they always said to themselves, we only sell to companies with more than 5,000 employees. But then they met a company with 3,700 employees with a past advocate in there. And, oh, wow, <laughs> it opened up a door for them. So I think it's a really important exercise because... It's focusing in on people. People are the ones that make decisions, not companies. And so if you follow and track people around, they can help you identify adjacent markets, geographies, verticals you hadn't really thought about that do in fact make a great fit for your customer base. Uh, unless you're an organization that like only sells. I only sell to chief compliance officers. I only sell into the banking industry. But if you have a variety of industries or verticals or types of people you can sell to. This becomes an explosive way to just track people and let the people dictate what opportunities can we create right now. Have you found variation in industry by how strong these relationship signals work? Like in some industries, like the, this is great and it works a lot of times in other industries. It's just not as effective given that buying dynamics. I haven't, we haven't dug into the data and I'm speaking open and honest to know if there's certain, is it CMOs versus CIOs versus CFOs that are the best, but I have some war stories that I could tell that can be great for your audience that would really help. But I'll tell this war story that might plant a seed. So we want a customer, which is a very well-known CRM based organization. And they had asked us, I only want you to monitor CXOs, certain job titles, chief data officer, chief information officer yeah. that leave one of our customers. And they think there was like 500, 800 of these companies. And then they go into another set of very determined named prospect accounts, thousands of those. 
And in the first month, we identified 96 of these opportunities. And this, I thought, was going to be the ultimate home run. Chief data officer from customer goes to this company. Chief information officer goes from this company. I thought, wow, you have the ultimate decision maker inside a prospect who used you for years. Oh, this is going to be great. So their new business team, usually these signals get routed to an inside sales team, SDRs, BDRs, new AEs, these kind of people. Pick up the phone, they start calling. Chief data officer, nope, never heard of you. Next company, chief information officer, nope, never heard of you. And so the feedback after month one and two was our champion came back to us and said, I think we got a big problem here. And the pro it's not that the data, like the data is the data, right? Job changes is just data. The problem is they self-discovered that their customer success team was so woefully single-threaded that they had never forged relationships with the deep executives that they talked about. They had forged relationships with middle managers and a few other people. Mm. So the people who signed the deals for our customer solution years ago, they never met those people. They never formed any sort of real relationship. So they get to the new company. It's as cold a lead as you can imagine. And it was, so they paused after month three and said, we actually have to do a giant reset in our CSM team. And what I constantly try to teach other customers of ours, the way that your CSMs deal with customers today completely dictate your new business development opportunities next year. So if you have a CSM team that doesn't really go deep and wide in your customers, then what ends up happening is you might as well only monitor power users as in key uh, people. Yeah. Because then the rest of your customers have no idea who you are. So when they land in Yeti, they get there and they go, who, who, I, we used you guys, I had no idea. <laughs> So it, that's so interesting. Play a huge part to the future of your inside sales team. That is so interesting because obviously there's from a sales perspective, like we're always trying to get in the key decision-making unit and we're trying to go from the top and work with champions. And there's such a higher probability of the deal closing if that's the case. And that's what we're always like training for. And then I guess on the customer success side, you're there trying to add value to the, to, to the company and the users, but mostly that might translate into let's have good usage of the end user on the platform and make them happy, but really you need to manage the account, prove to the organization that you're adding value and managing those just from the top down as well. Because it's that deep and wide. You as a CSM will get fixated on helping usage and utility. And those will be program managers. Those will be middle managers. Like the people that use your product day to day is not a chief data officer or chief information officer, but that chief data officer and information officer like everyone else, they end up leaving at a rate of 3% a month. That's the decay of a CRM. Mm. And 1.5 years from now, that chief data officer will leave and go somewhere else. And when they go there, they have the ability to cut seven, eight-figure checks. But if you didn't form a strong relationship, a relationship with them now, when they get to company XYZ, they won't know you from a hell of beans. So before we move on to switch gears a little bit, I have a couple of questions 
that I'd love to get your perspective on around like the triggers and, and certain information. Something you said earlier was it really struck a chord with me, which was around like focusing on your asymmetric opportunity or the value that you can provide. And so it made me think of in the pipeline when I'm managing with AEs, I'm always saying that not all deals are made equal. Some are going to be super high velocity, uh, high ACV, and we should focus on these and there are good logos and everything else. And others are going to take you ages to close. They're not a great fit and they, it's just going to be more of a hassle. So deprioritize those and really prioritize on those kind of key ones. And so it's really, like you said, it's not just time management, it's also energy management. Where do you actually focus the same amount of time on one area or another? What you were referring to was more at the top of funnel with like the segmentation. When for SDRs who are looking at low hanging fruit opportunities, one that's worked well for us is always looking at stalled opportunities or lost opportunities because even if they're not in the pipeline currently, we've A, got all the information from discoveries that has already happened and B, they were like qualified enough to go through to sales process. And for one reason or another, it didn't work out, but maybe this is the right time. And that was almost like the cherry on the cake. If someone was behind on their opportunity camp for the month, then that was like the gold mine to go and hunt from and reopen some accounts. What other things, like either whether it's triggers or ways to look at accounts in terms of the low hanging fruit, yeah, what would you recommend SDRs go and do today? If I, you hired me at your organization today as an SDR, some of the things that I'd be looking for in my first 90 days, building opportunity. I would number one, if your team was in the fortunate position to have buying intent, tracking people who check out our website, download key assets, I would do a correlation report between companies that have high buying intent, so people that are on our website, and new executives have also joined in that same time frame, because now you have people who are interested in topics and at the same time are also most open to change. So I would start in taking, there's multiple forms of sales intelligence, I would take companies that have both at the same time as a number one priority. To your point, if I went into our lost opportunities or what it like, not a, I don't know if you call it not a fit, but I've got these other stages in our CRM that are like keep in touch kind of level. Yeah, stalled. Yeah. <laughs> I would go into those and also check to see if there were those where the key stakeholder that I was dealing with has left because if the person, so imagine you created an opportunity and that person no longer works there, I would completely discount that one out. Or if there was potentially in the notes that the reason the deal stalled is the CXO wasn't bought in, I would see if there was a replacement of that person because now your champion could reintroduce the idea to a new executive. So those are the, usually the two that I like to use to resurface opportunity. And just to repeat them, I look for buying intent and I'm looking for job changes happening simultaneously because now you have two compelling events. But I want to completely deselect any account where the champion got me all the way to proposal, deal stalled. But if that champion's left, I completely write off that opportunity and I don't spin my wheels and start going back at it. And that's happened a lot. In 2022, I saw a lot of that. 
Champions mm-hmm. got us somewhere, got the proposal. Person isn't there anymore. Like, now yeah. I have to completely redo the sales cycle. I, yeah, I'm not doing that. Yeah. I love it. Chris, do you have any questions? I know we were talking about wavelength and your experience with the people moving their accounts. Do you have any questions before we move on and change gears? Uh, so we sell the high schools and there's just been a lot of turnover. I think there's a lot of admins that are just burnt out from COVID and things. And so a lot of people changing jobs and there was a lot of finding new champions and also tracking these people to where they landing next. And it's actually been a super valuable, as you said, like, way to get new deals is to find our power users and where they land, but it's been a pretty manual process. How do you, so you have this system pipeline signals. How do you, where do you get this data? Like, how do you, what's this platform like? Yeah. The way I describe it to people is all the raw, imagine you're making cupcakes. All the raw ingredients are publicly available. So every LinkedIn profile in the world, is a URL. And when a URL changes, so imagine changing time and experience in your LinkedIn profile, that can be tracked. So us and our competitors are all buying our sugar or flour from the same ingredients or from the same ingredient store. So all LinkedIn change and it's being correlated with other data sources, we all acquire it from the same spot. It then comes in to what we call the global command center. The global command center is taking the raw ingredients, turning it into recipes. So we then turn them into stories. We then correlate all your existing customers against all your prospects, and we write these descriptions. John Smith came from your customer. He worked there one role ago. He left in 2022. He's now moved over to this company. Here's his new role and title. Here's his confirmed email address and his LinkedIn profile. Now it's turned into cupcakes. And then our last process is shipping the cupcakes into whatever sales platform you want. You want it in CRM, you want it in sales loft for outreach. So that's the technological cupcake making machine. It's three-staged approach, acquire raw ingredients, make cupcakes, ship them into the end mile destination for the sellers to process and prospect. So with that, our customers will actually send us a list of power users. They'll say, these are 5,000 people that are meaningful to us who were gave us net promoter scores of 9 out of 10 or higher, and they loved us, and we want to know when these people change jobs. We just track those very same people with their unique identifiers through LinkedIn, and any change that happens to those people they get a report every month on those changes. Yeah. So at Wavelength, we help schools get better data on their alumni. So we're tracking, they have this similar problem of like, how do you keep track of alumni that change jobs and are doing different things? How do we keep their email address up to date, et cetera? And so we would plug in with an external APIs in order to get similar data. We use people, but we also looked at like Contacts Plus and some other places. Yeah. Is that the type of data that you're talking exactly. about? So we have a we have a we have a basket of sources that we prefer. Our competitors yeah. probably have very similar with maybe a nuance to their favorites. So we yeah. have an API group of favorite data sources. But I always say to people that the data is the data, really. Now, what makes it unique 
the flavor of the cupcakes. So the feature is how you tell the story to the sellers and put it in the end mile into their CRM. But the most important piece is the enablement. So we actually took from Sales for Life all the training IP, put it into pipeline signals, because what we were watching is sellers were like, oh, this is amazing. You told me about this new executive over at Yeti. Now what do I do? Now what do I do? <laughs> yeah. Handed you a lead on a silver platter. Yeah. We had to bring in hardcore enablement to make sure they turned these leads into sales qualified leads. That's what you did in pipeline signals as part of sales for life. No, that's what we're now doing in pipeline signals. Okay. Thinking we wouldn't have needed to do that when I started the company. Yeah. When I started the company, I thought, oh, I've got a sales training company and I've got a do it for you business. Turns out the do it for you business was incomplete. It needed to tell people who to call and why, but then it also needed to hold the seller's hand and accountability to making sure that it actually happened. Yeah. Cause you're also helping people do something that they might not have already been doing some, there might be some population of your customers that are already doing it just very manually. Like Chris has been doing for example, at wavelength, but I imagine that there's a lot that see the value of it, but they need to learn the playbook, execute it and, and infiltrate that throughout the company. And in a way, pipeline signals is sales for life and pipeline signals. <laughs> yeah. Very yeah. complimentary. Okay. <clears throat> You've got me coughing now. Okay, so to switch gears a little bit, I want to put on my entrepreneur hat, get into your head around building businesses. For context, in November, I think it's October, November, I launched a side hustle called Rocket GTM, which is a go-to-market advisory company. I say it's company, it's really just me, myself and I. And that was spawned from my experience in doing go-to-market at Spendesk and international expansions. And just having in my personal network of friends, entrepreneurs, other leaders, asking me questions. And there was always like these themes to the questions that they're asking. And I noticed there was two themes. One, it was mainly technical founders who have never really done sales or revenue things before. And two, they were always basically, okay, I built this product, I've got our first users, and now we are going to try and build a revenue machine. And I've not a clue what to do. And it's too early to hire a VP of sales. What's your advice? And I for the last few years, I've been just doing like calls like this podcast, just informational sharing insights. And uh, in November, I turned that into like a more formalized business. And so I see some similarities to what you've done with sales for life in that you've always been an entrepreneur, as you said, but you had employee experience as an expert within the sales industry. And then you took that in experience and then built a business around that. You focused on sales training in particular. And that for 11 years, you've also got now a SaaS business. I'm here sitting here thinking, I've got this guy who is a decade in front of me, of experience in front of me, in a relatively similar path. What questions should I be asking him? Because I'm experiencing all of these different problems. For example, focusing on too many problems or a wide set of problems with the clients and then trying to figure out and narrow what's the real niche, what's the real value add. Should I build a SaaS business out of this? <laughs> so tell me from your perspective as an entrepreneur building an agency and then into a SaaS, what are some of the big mistakes that you made or the lessons that you learned through that experience? So I'll layer one on for you. If you went onto my LinkedIn profile, I actually just started a third business and then I'll get into some backstory. That third business takes from my experience of human capital inside my own business, my company, I'm a huge believer in talent overseas, offshore talent. I have many teammates in the Philippines, Bangladesh, and India. 
And so I've created a mastermind community, similar, like a side hustle to help entrepreneurs and founders go through the mindset, skill set, and toolkit of offshore. So it's a small mastermind that I'm going to be able to help my fellow founders and their team. The reason I bring that up is where I was last week, I was on a helicopter and cat ski trip with 48 other CEOs. And it's an event called the Maple Summit. And the Maple Summit is the CEOs get together and we all share best practices and what we've learned. And <clears throat> some of them have taken their businesses IPO. Some of them have raised billions of dollars. Some of them are running dozens of companies at the same time. And when I first went to that event in 2020, I actually went with a singular question. And I wanted to know, can an entrepreneur run more than one business at a time? That was the goal for me. I always wanted to build a portfolio of like-minded businesses. And so what I believe in, and so the answer is yes, of course, I met 48 other guys that <laughs> do the same thing. But what I believe is that you, what's very difficult is having a massive disparity of ideal customer profiles. Cause then you need to build a database. Like imagine you sold to dry cleaners and to chief financial officers, company two, <laughs> company three was to CISOs and <clears throat> you'd be building these silos so independently. But for me, I've chosen to serve two communities. One, the sales and marketing community. I started that 12 plus years ago. I have 20,000 LinkedIn connections, most of those chief revenue officers, chief marketing officers. But at the same time, there are many smaller founders, presidents of businesses under 100 employees that are also in that database. <clears throat> and over the years, because I've been an entrepreneur for so long, my founder network has grown substantially. So I've chosen and I'm going to build a portfolio of businesses that serve those two communities, the sales world, the founder world. Now, I may choose to have a variety of different types of businesses. Those could be complete professional services. Those could be tech-enabled services. Those could be all the way to SaaS. I've also chosen my financial models or sales motions. I originally started pipelines, uh, sales for life, sorry, as a project-based business in which it collected revenue, large chunks of revenue, but the revenue was very roller coaster. And over the years, I learned to create what's called reoccurring revenue that eventually became recurring revenue. Reoccurring means it's a contract that has a high probability that it would renew next year. Whereas reoccurring is a subscription that never turns off unless somebody unsubscribes. Pipeline signals. When I launched it, it became a subscription recurring. Get Leverage, when I launched it, it is a subscription recurring because I learned from the past. So let's now get into some of the mistakes. Some of the mistakes I learned is that betting on project-based revenue, so things I would never do again, it's called time and materials pricing means you're selling your time. If I give you a hundred hours, you give me $5,000. Terrible, it's unscalable. So I then moved from Sales for Life to what's called fixed fee bidding. Fixed fee bidding means that you are, you give me a hundred thousand dollars, we'll deliver this project over one year. That was a good start, 
but it had huge swings in revenue. Some months were half a million dollars in revenue, some months were 30,000, totally unpredictable. So I've learned over time to, I wanna create stability in revenue and I wanna to move towards monthly recurring, quarterly recurring or annual recurring subscriptions. So those are, every business that I own will be a subscription business going forward. Uh, other mistakes that I learned was uh, to your point, being way too generalist. I'm a big believer, it's better. Now VCs don't like this model, but being a an organization that is the best at one thing, even if it's a feature-based business, a feature-based business, the word lifestyle business isn't a bad thing. Mm. If you build a feature-based business that is a couple of million ARR or 5 million ARR or 10 million ARR, you and everyone in your family are very happy people. And just the VCs, they want billion dollar platforms. They want it broader, but those are very difficult to build. I'm a huge believer in build. You're good at one thing. That business is good at one thing, one product. And once it gets to a certain size, it can introduce a second product or a third product, but it is not a generalist business. Uh, so each one of my businesses are all single skewed. They do one thing. I've never had a business that had three or four products. It had one or one and a half, but it was wildly the best at one thing. And it could collect millions of dollars of ARR for each one of those. Those are two things I think right off the bat you could run with as an entrepreneur and be wildly successful. Your financial model and being super laser focused, even if it means you're shutting doors, but you're but you're opening doors to a very specific type of people, those people will be rabid fans, they'll be stickier, you'll be known for that one thing. And then you just need to have businesses, if you decide to do more than one, that do each one of those like really well. That's super interesting. This is, this is the second time in the last few weeks that I've come across this concept of trying to focus your multiple businesses around the same ICP or buyer persona, yeah. because I think like a lot of serial entrepreneurs, they just go after like opportunities that they see and they can be very disparate. And it's like a dilution this of energy. Hugely valuable lesson for if any of your listeners are early twenties, mid twenties sellers, I want you to picture you as a seller and in what's called an intrapreneur it means you are a business within a business. I think one of the worst things a seller could ever do is they start their career at Snowflake. They're selling to data and engineers. That's who Snowflake sells to. Then you get recruited to a company who sells to CFOs. Oh, they're gonna pay me 10 grand more. They jump the ICP, <laughs> but their LinkedIn network is still data and engineers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Move over. Now they're building up all these CFOs. Oh, and then Oracle calls me and they want me to sell the CMOs. So then they wake up my age, 44 years old, and all of a sudden, they've had six jobs, six different buyer personas. Their network isn't strong. Your LinkedIn network and the email databases that you build, it's a compounding effect. And so if I just have businesses that stick to the sales community, I have 20,000 CFOs in one database. And now if I build up my founder one, but that took, you don't want to wake up at yeah. 60 and have served like every market in the world, but not really strong in any one of them. Pick a lane, run with it. That works for both founders and sellers.
your ICP database is really important. So funny you say that. When I first started posting on LinkedIn, I first started posting to promote Spendesk and talking about expense management, CFOs and stuff like that. And then I just thought the same thing really as what you're saying, which is, am I going to stay at Spendesk my whole life? No. Am I going to just gear up my network to finance people? No. Am I the best person to talk about finance topics? Not. And I thought, screw it. Let's just focus on what I love talking about, which is sales and entrepreneurship. And so over those last however many years, that's all of the again, same thing. Most of my network is in there. So I guess this is, it makes sense. The Rocket GTM is for technical founders and they're entrepreneurs trying to do sales topics. So I can start thinking and brainstorm, okay, how can I turn this into a SaaS? I think there's, there is a benefit in the beginning of going a bit wider because you need to go a little wide to well, see like, what the opportunities are. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Alfie, is there anything else that you want to cover? I, we're getting to an hour, so maybe we should hop into rapid fire. Sure. Let me look. I think we covered pretty much the kind of the meat and bones. I could speak with you for probably hours and we'll again, probably have to take this offline and pick your brain more about the, uh, the entrepreneurial side. Chris, do you want to take over and jump into rapid fire? Yeah. So to start, what's your favorite non-business book? Oh, I'm trying to think of the name of it. I'll just tell you what it's about and then you can find it because it's <laughs> quite famous. It's about a World War II Olympian. He was an Olympian, drafted into World War II, crashed in the Pacific Ocean, and he and his plane were the longest float at sea, captured by the Japanese, lived two or three years in prison camp. And it's about, oh, it's called Unbroken. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Didn't get shattered after the craziest <laughs> World War II story ever. I saw, I watched the film and it was a movie until I like read the book. <laughs> I, on my I cannot believe a human being lived through this. Dude, powerful yeah. film. I should yeah. read the book. What book should every entrepreneur read? A new one by a friend of mine named Dan Martell called Buy Back Your Time. It is every entrepreneur and seller needs to understand time management. Yep. He's got great content, then, that guy. Yeah. What advice is commonly given in your world that you believe is false? Believe is false is blood force trauma actions equal outcomes from a sales perspective. I think that's a 20th century myth where it was like smile and dial. Here's a list more dials you make a day, more emails you send a day. I believe that the scales have tipped and it's not a quantity volume game that it used to be. Excellent. Where can people find you? How should people reach out to you? What do you want to plug this place? Connect with me on LinkedIn. I should be the only Jamie Shanks that looks like this guy. <laughs> and connect with me on LinkedIn. Go to pipelinesignals.com if you want to be able to have help creating lead lists and opportunities of customers on the move. And at the same time, being enabled to turn those leads into sales qualified leads. Awesome. Thank you so much. And Chris, do you want to wrap up on the, on our side? Yeah. And you can find us at the search for growth.com. You can find us also on LinkedIn, Alfie Marsh and Chris Gibson. We also have newsletters. I have my content I consumed and Alfie has his rocket GTM and his consulting business for technical founders. All of these links will be in the show notes. Thanks everyone. Thanks a lot. Jamie. Thanks. That was awesome. We'll see everyone next week. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Take care. Thanks.